Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome to the August edition of our audio book club. It's the dog days of summer and we are perhaps appropriately going to be talking about the steamy topic of passionate love as written about by Christina Naring in her new polemic, A Vindication of Love, Reclaiming Romance for the 21st Century. Joining me today are Katie Royfe, a culture critic at NYU and a regular audio book club participant. Welcome, Katie. Hi. And a guest participant, Laura Kipnis who is a Slate contributor and the author of Against Love and the Female Thing. Welcome, Laura. Hi. So before jumping in, I just want to say a word from our sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Audible.com. If you sign up for a one-book-a-month subscription to Audible through our URL, you'll get a credit good for one free book, which is a pretty good deal. Even if you cancel your subscription during the 14-day free trial period, you can still keep the book. So the address is www.audiblepodcast.com slash slate. So check it out. Okay, so this is, um, by the author's own contention, a polemic. It is a kind of complicated argument with different different elements that we'll hopefully we'll delve into about love and how feminism, with its emphasis on equitable relationships, has either wittingly or unwittingly kind of leached the passion out of romance. And along the way, Naring does a kind of fresh reading of literary and historical figures, including the wife of Bath, Emily Dickinson, Eloise and Abelard, Dante and Beatrice, and Mary Wollstonecraft. Katie, could you tell us a little more about the book and what did you make about of Naring's very provocative argument here? 
Well, I mean, as you can tell by the subtitle, Reclaiming Romance for the 21st Century, it's an extremely ambitious book. And it has a sort of grandeur to it, which could easily be seen as adolescent. I can easily see somebody dismissing this book as kind of puerile and adolescent. And I can also see that somebody seeing it as kind of heroic and original and interesting. And um, and I think both those readings are sort of right, which is interesting. And, and you know, what she's really talking about is how modern love has become bland and conventional and our, our interest in security and marriage is sort of, she's trying to put it in this historical perspective and say it's not, we don't have to see love this way. And she's trying to look at an older, more difficult, messier tradition of, you know, essentially kind of suffering and strong feeling. And I think that her way of doing that, which is to look at these couples like, you know, from everywhere, from, you know, Emily Dickinson to Hannah Arendt um, and going back even farther, Eloise and Abelard, is uh, it is extremely provocative and well done. And it's kind of a um, also a fun read, I think. Yeah, Laura, what about you? What did you? What's your quick reaction? And then we'll delve more into what the book is. Well, part of her argument and where she starts is that um, her contention is that women have not been permitted to be ridiculous in love and to fail and to fail grandly, and that men are more uh, permitted to, to humiliate themselves and be abject, and that doesn't count against them, particularly writers. She makes the claim that, you know, the, however ridiculous a man is in love, it's not held against him in terms of his work. So that would be one thing to talk about. So the, the book is is uh, geared to women, and it's about women, and it's a complaint. I mean, it is a feminist book in that it's a, a complaint about differential treatment between men and women. And then the second part of the complaint is about modern society and this way that we love in this kind of wimpy, tepid way, and she wants to cure that. Yeah, I think that's that's a um, th- that thing that you pulled out about the feminist argument is really important. And one of I thought the strongest p- parts of the book is a uh, when she argues that she shows how the fact that Mary Wollstonecraft, for example, had these passionate affairs and then threw tried to throw herself well, in fact, did throw herself off this bridge into the Thames. That that's kind of like a blot on her feminist CV in a way that you know if a man were to have done that, it would just be part of the you know kind of mytho heroic aura that would surround him. Just looking at the book to get a quote from from Naring uh, on the point that you just raised, Laura, she's saying, um, it's page 11 of the hardback, that such relationships, like the relationship that Wollstonecraft had with one of her lovers, show that love can be a form of strength, of emotional entrepreneurship, of creative enlargement. In fact, love can be a form of feminism. And then she goes on to say, the most ardent agents of women's advancement have often been the most ardent entrepreneurs of love. They knew that far from representing an act of weakness or docility, women's love, like men's, is struggle. It is conquest and self-conquest. I thought this was actually both the most interesting part of the book and in some ways the most flawed. Like, it was a funny paradox reading it because on the one hand I thought she's absolutely right and on the other hand there were certain specific examples she showed like um, Edna St. Vincent Millay. She tries to suggest that Millay isn't read very much today because she was sort of overly ridiculous in love and I actually think it's just that Millay's poetry is not fashionable Um, it has nothing to do with her love affair because you think about Sylvia Plath Plath was vulnerable in love and Plath's reputation is still (laughs) completely intact actually which is a version of a point I think you made Katie in your book review in the times of this book and um, but so what what to you were the strongest parts of the book and what were the weakest 
one of the, the parts one of the parts that interested me um, because I thought it was very original is that one of her points is that we tend to it, we we have a very therapeutic culture in which we take the success of a you know the sort of healthfulness of a relationship is what we're most interested in and you know have you made a healthy love choice are you in love with somebody who's not good for you all of that and she kind of takes that idea apart and talks about the value of failure and the value of suffering and she offers a whole other way to look at relationships which is about you know in sort of it was in that part you just read which is about living vividly and feeling strongly and having these kind of grand heroic failures and what does that mean to look at your life and your love affairs as a kind of almost an artistic output and so some of the relationships she's seeing as successful conventionally or you know if you were in some shrink's office on the upper east side they would say what are you doing right or your you friends know? if you were having your coffee with your girlfriends right. they would be like he's not good for you <laughs> exactly and i yeah. and that i found i thought was extremely well done and extremely interesting i don't know how ultimately convinced maybe this is something we can talk about a little more how ultimately convincing it is as a like, a way to live one's life yeah you know or a sort of prescription but um, I did find it compelling partly because it's so counterintuitive. And one of the things I think is, is actually great about this book is that it makes you think about things in a different way. And I do think that's very rare, especially when it comes to relationships and kind of, you know, marriage and all of that. Yeah, I agree. I, I like the romanticism of it, and I like the the quirky anti-reality principle aspect of it and the contrarianism and also the anti-therapeutic thing. It's a, it's a kind of counter to the women who love too much sort <laughs> of book. You know, it's mm-hmm. a defense of that position. At the same time, I totally agree with you about Malay, and I picked that out also because I think mm-hmm. she tends to overstate her arguments. And where I think the book is not Naring so does. strong, yeah. Naring does, yeah. 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 Where I think the book is not so strong is partly the way that it's framed as this attack against feminism. Right. And there's some quotes here um, in the epilogue I thought I would just read. Mm-hmm. To this day, a woman in love is a woman who must l- relinquish her feminist credentials. And then she goes on, the more intelligent you claim to be, the more ironical and distant must be your relation to love. One of the few things feminism has not yet brought to womankind and indeed has helped torpedo is the right to be romantic. Hmm. This just doesn't convince me. I mean, I don't, Mm -hmm. that doesn't, I don't recognize any version of feminism in that that I'm familiar with. So, so a lot of the, the thumping against feminism, which is, runs throughout the book, I I was less convinced by than some of the stuff you're bringing up, like the the romanticism, the anti-therapeutic stuff. Yeah. I agree with you, because I, I mean, I do think that her efforts to to make this political or to enter a political conversation are the sort of flattest parts of the mm. book. I mean, to me, I agree with you. I, I also felt the same way, which is that that those feminist arguments just weren't ringing true. And maybe they were ringing true of a sort of slightly different era, like more of an early 90s kind of feminism. Or, mm-hmm. But I just don't, I didn't really, I mean, I, I, did, I agreed with you. I didn't think those those parts of it connected well, to play devil's advocate for a second, because I was asking myself this very question, you know, does she need to make feminism her straw man here? I'm thinking about when Katha Pollitt published an essay in The New Yorker called Learning to Drive about how in the aftermath of a breakup she ha- she learned to drive. And the breakup was this depicted as a breakup with someone who was not that good for her, who like kind of didn't, ended up sort of cheating on her, continuously, I think, continuously and 
I don't know, asking her, you know, just being kind of an asshole in various ways. And when the essay came out, and then again, when the book came out in a book, she was she was attacked by other feminists for being kind of too vulnerable. In, and in fact, she was attacked recently in Double X, one of the, ma- the magazine that I help edit, for this by another feminist, by Linda Hirschman. Oh, no, it was actually in Slate, excuse me. And it was, you know, how could she let herself be in this, how, should, how could she let herself become this vulnerable? So there is a little of that, certainly, in the world of feminism, it seems, even if it is you very are, kind of 1970s. Yeah, even I was going to like, bringing up you know, figures from a slightly right, different era. Right, I mean, era, of our generation, yeah, it's, I don't, it's I would find it, not the case. Yeah, I mean, much. I think it, that's what I mean by we're talking about a slightly different era. Well, but you know, it's a recent. question about, like, whether, you know, that is recent, but Except it was the age older, of the people who are older, ta- who are criticizing but, her. But, you know... She is right, and maybe feminist. Maybe she goes too far with labeling this feminist. Maybe it's the effect feminism has had on the culture, in the sense that she is. I think she is right that women, maybe more broadly, like I think about the moments when I talk to my female friends about a disastrous relationship or something like that, and they are like, "Get out!" Or you know, there's this kind of that's dangerous and bad, and you shouldn't do that um, feeling. And it's 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 because friends protect friends in a certain way. I'm sure we've all had these kinds of conversations at some point in our lives but you know again just to play devil's advocate I wonder whether she is how, how else could she have done this part of the book well see I think that I think that it's I think you're right that it's women mm-hmm. and that there is a sort of enforcement of these conventional views mm-hmm. um, that takes place in a sort in a in a subtle way I just don't think it's feminism mm-hmm. necessarily mm-hmm. I, I think it's more mm-hmm. I mean I think that it is women right. and I think it is right. the, this culture and where we you know are this kind of very security centered right. idea of, of, relationships of relationships that gets pushed and everything, on people not by just everyone. Relationships, yeah. actually, yeah. But I, but I also think, I mean, so, so I think, I think you're totally right that there is that element. I just, what I think is that there's something a little bit reductionistic to try to make it political, right? And well, to try to write, I mean, just the part of the book that's trying to be a kind of feminist mm-hmm. manifesto mm-hmm. Is, is to me was was less, convincing was less convincing for the reasons that I just don't. I don't know that it's... I mean, some of it a little bit was true, but it almost seemed like the least interesting and the least relevant part of the yeah. argument. I mean, I, I guess Well, it makes the book actually kind of seem of interest to a smaller group of people who follow these arguments. I also way. think it tends to take easy shots. Like, I have a different yeah. reading of the Katha Pollitt issue, which I followed very closely, too, and that's where I would have liked a little more subtlety from narrowing... Like I thought that so. people were were uncomfortable with the confessionalism of those of essays Paul. and with the the public score settling aspect of it, mm-hmm. and it may have come out in some way that rebuked her for being this well known feminist who you know was uh, had suffered at the hands of this man. But I, I just think what was going on was more complicated. Yeah, and I think in all these cases, or, well, not in all of them, but some of them, you do get the sense with Naring that she's kind of twisting her cases around to support a point. Yeah. And that was, you know, in, in certain cases, I just felt less convinced, and that was one of them. Yes, I I do agree. You know, it's funny. I think so much of my reaction to the book was dual, in the sense that I would at once agree and think, wow, that's really astute and interesting and provocative, and it's making me think in a new way. And then I would think, no, that's completely not true. You know, so, and it's partly because she takes things so far. And one example I'm thinking of is early on in the book, she tries to make the argument that the idea that love is blind, this <laughs> kind of literary trope we've inherited literally from the Greek myth of Cupid and Psyche and, and love of being blind, you know, shooting arrows blindly at people to get them to be in love. 
she tries to argue that argue that it's a form of enlargement that we never see as clearly as we do when we're in love, which on a certain level, and, and again, Kate, I'm going to go back to something you were saying, Katie, about sort of how she's aestheticizing love. I think the, the whole push of this book is to depoliticize and re-aestheticize love. And, you know, on that level, I can relate to that and think, wow, that's a very interesting way of viewing it. Like, to, love is enlargement. But then when I think pragmatically in terms of life, that's just not my experience of, like, obsession or infatuation. I don't feel that it ever made me see particularly clearly or that when I see other people in that, like, infatuated state, it makes them see clearly. And I wondered what you thought of this section of the book. Well, in an interesting way, I think talking about it, turning love into an aesthetic project is definitely true, and that's where it ends up. It wants love to be a work of art. And I was also interested in that section about love isn't blind. It's, you know, that's where we see the person most clearly. And in a funny way, this is a kind of oddly not psychological book. You know, it's aesthetic Mm -hmm. and not psychological. And so things like ambivalence or projection are not categories that Mm -hmm. she brings into the discussion. And that leads to another point, a question that I wanted to, to bring up. I mean, most of the time we think about love as something that happens between two people. You know, it's mm-hmm. kind of dyadic in some way. Mm-hmm. And, and she's very mostly interested in the position of the person doing the loving mm-hmm. and um, valorizing that position because that's to live the most fully is to, you know, throw yourself into love regardless of the consequences. But it sort of leaves aside for a lot of the book, what is the position of the other person, the person who's having someone hurl themselves at them? (laughs) And she does in some of the readings, like uh, Mary Wollstonecraft's, one of her lovers, Gilbert Emily, who's kind of ran in the opposite direction and tried to, you know, send um, Wollstonecraft across to the other side of the world (laughs) to do some errand for him. (laughs) You know, you get the sense of people being besieged Mm by these intense, loving uh, people who aren't really thinking about... Emerson and Fuller. Yeah, yeah, they're hard Yeah, she's a very funny line where she's like, unsurprisingly, he fled soon after. I mean, it's not quite that literal, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so this question of what is her psychological theory of love would be an mm-hmm. interesting thing to talk about. And as I say, I think it's kind of monadic. Mm. That's really interesting because one thing I kept thinking about, and I know we were just chatting about this before we started the podcast and we can get to it now or later, is you do become, I think for, I th- I was realizing I was becoming very preoccupied by who Christina Nairing was, who this author was, what her persona was. And as you say that, I realize it's because of that, the fact that she doesn't psychologize. So the whole book seems like her kind of proje- uninterrogated psychological projection of something, which clearly it is interrogated because it's. I think this is a performance as much as anything else, but she's kind of performing lack of performance almost in the book. Well, I kind of wondered as I was reading it is given that it's prescriptive and that it wants everyone to throw themselves more fully into love um, and suffer and maybe even die for love and be extreme and intense. Um, and she kind of writes this as a generalized prescription. But what I wondered is, is this more like a defense of a particular personality type? Is mm-hmm. it a defense of a particular kind of character who is, who, or a temperament, you know, who is that kind of over-intense, loves too much, throws themselves at people. And, you know, when you encounter these sorts of people, they can be very charming and intense and alive and charismatic. And charismatic. Mm-hmm. But they can also be narcissistic and self-involved. In, and, you know, kind of suck all the air out of the room. 
So that was part of my question about this. Is, is it so generalizable or is it, you know, is it the retort of the woman who loves too much? Yeah. Well, Katie, but, I'd be curious to know what you said, because I, one thing I wondered was, you know, the book says it aims to establish a new romantic paradigm. And can, it, can you really see that happening? Well, I mean, I think to just say, I mean, I think you're right. And that's really an interesting way to look at it. But I feel like that retort of the woman who loves too much hasn't really been given and hasn't, hasn't really been, been heard. Right. And I and I really f- came out of the book feeling like, you know, it has all these excesses. So much of these arguments are outlandish. Can one actually live one's life according to these principles? You know, I, right. I, I think not. Right. Um, and we'll talk, maybe talk about it more, but I mean, Naring herself says she was hospitalized for love. Yeah, um, I'll find that quote. Maybe we'll finish. find that quote. Yeah. But I think that there's, there's you know... I, that element to it, but I do feel like it's a necessary corrective because I think we lack imagination about the different ways you can conduct your life or your personal life. And so I felt like it's very valuable to hear from that side, um, even though it is very specific. And people have very strong reactions to this book. And um, my sister, who's a psychiatrist, said um, her response was, well, you know, you can't really take that Attitude. if you have anyone that you're responsible for, if you have anyone you have to take care of, like a child, mm-hmm. or if you have a job where you had, say, patients or, say, people that you were responsible to on a daily basis. And and I think that's, that's interesting. sort of interesting because it is, you know, not only just a narcissistic type, but also an artist type, uh, you know, a kind a of risk-taking type, a risk-taking type. And I do, you know, I just, I, I don't know how she doesn't get into the practical elements of life. I think somewhat to the detriment of the book. I mean, I did feel like she's, I also felt like there was a slipperiness in that she was attacking marriage and married people, but she wasn't actually talking about marriage or what is it like, or, right. you know, and what some is of yeah. these figures are married, like right. Diego Rivera and Frida Kahlo, for example, well, and she sort of defends v- their marriage. It right. very much so very, because they're unfaithful. And right. Yeah. Yeah, because she, they're crazy. Like, because it's screwy. <laughs> but it's written in very much of a remove from yes. everyday life. I mean, the examples are all historical and literary or, or from myth. So you don't get the sense of how this does play out in everyday life. And she doesn't, you know, yeah, she doesn't ask that and question. And she doesn't want to attack. Well, I mean, it's and sort of the, wisely, yeah. she doesn't want to attack the vast continent of married people that is our in front of us. I yeah. think she does, though. She's pretty well, she mocking. Does want to, she's pretty but she mocking. She doesn't actually do it. But she I doesn't do, do it directly. It's, it's a good point. It's like she, what she's trying to do is puncture rhetoric more than actuality. I mean, that was what I kept feeling. That was what she really wanted to do is sort of point out how kind of security obsessed our conversations about right. marriage and parenting are. But and I what you say, she, Katie, makes really a lot of sense. I mean, what both of you are saying makes a lot of sense to me in that you're right, I think, Laura, that. It is like a certain personality type, like a kind of narcissistic personality type. But what's interesting is that the that type, the heedless, risk-taking type, is precisely what's a little bit the scapegoat in our culture right now. And I think in the kind of, certainly the the kind of motherhood arguments about how one is supposed to conduct oneself as a mother in these so-called mommy wars and the kind of performance of I'm a bad mother because I let my child watch TV for an hour, which is obviously kind of absurd if you think about what motherhood was 30 years ago. So there's something very historically specific about this book, and I do really wonder, I wondered while I was reading it, what it would feel like to read these literary arguments in 30 years, whether so much of the reading of this book is against the kind of imagined <coughs> backdrop of you know, op-ed articles about marriage and motherhood. 
Well, it's both historically specific, but she also thinks love is a timeless thing and really not, uh, you know, culturally specific because, you know, she pulls all these examples from classics and medieval times and, you know, thinks they're all equally applicable. But the historical specificity is about women not being able to love now. Yeah. How we think about women loving now. Yeah. I I think it would have been a stronger book. I felt like she took examples, like she attacked things like he's just not that into you or women who love too much kind of that that kind of self-helpy literature which is such a small corner of you know i mean just not in the kind of intelligent debate that she is actually trying to enter very relevant and i think it yeah. would have been a more powerful book if she actually looked at um, daily life a little more mm-hmm, and she mm-hmm, actually mm-hmm. took on marriage a little more directly because i think that would have grounded Mm-hmm. some of what she's arguing against. I mean, we know what she's arguing against, but I think it would have been a more powerful book if she'd no, been more direct. No, you have the feeling that she doesn't ever want to have to live with anybody, right? That there's just no interest on yeah. that level the of... Most, the most specific she gets is when she talks about um, you, you need distance in a relationship. Right. Um, you don't want to have sex too often. Interestingly, she's against... <laughs> right, like long-distance relationships. Like, oh, she's against vibrators. She's against sex toys. Yeah, yeah. vibrators and sex toys. <laughs> or too um, mechanical. So, yeah. and she, yeah. you know, also, she's against any kind of and coolness. And she's actually also kind of against sexual um, availability in a certain way. She yeah. has sort of a line about how being promiscuous is so you know what everyone does and so therefore uninteresting well that was the contradictory part she's both in favor of throwing yourself at people with you know out heeding the consequences or whether they're actually into you or not or a suitable person i did want to know so what does a relationship look like do you have sex in one of these relationships or do you just kind of taunt this goes back to this persona question i think you should read okay so let me read this so in the epilogue to the book and then we'll get back to you laura because i know you were going to say more in the epilogue she she kind of restates her point that you know toward a new definition of eros and it really is like you know, this book is goal-oriented in a certain way. It is trying to... Um, while being against goals. While being against goals. You know, it's, it's trying to get us to rethink things. And she says at the end, romantic love at the start of the century is cause for embarrassment. What it once t- partook of the heroic and the transcendent has been lost. Undermined by cynicism, marginalized by recreational sex. This is one of those moments. Rendered suspect by our culture's obsession with safety and displaced in part by the worship of family values, it has also suffered and suffered gravely from the side effects of feminism. Okay, but then then she goes on to kind of implicate herself, or this is the moment when the I enters the story. And she says, as I write these words, I bear the bodily scars of a loss or two in love. I have been derailed by love, hospitalized by love, flung around five continents, shaken, overjoyed, inspired, and unsettled by love. But as I think upon it now, a couple weeks away from giving birth to a little girl, I wish her something of the same. I feel new, ready for the next round. And, you know, both Katie and I quoted this in our reviews because it's such a striking, odd quote. I mean, you can't, you know, it's just like sort of the money shot of the book in a certain way, right? It's like what you've been waiting for. Um, So, yeah, there's an obvious persona in, in construction here. Well, and then there's a very lengthy acknowledgments. And yes, I, which we normally wouldn't think of acknowledgments as part of the book, but in this case, because of that quote Megan brought up, and because her persona is so much a part of this, or raised by this that 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 sentence in particular and the book in general, the acknowledgments are very extreme because they go into great detail, unusual detail uh, about her very um, kind of colorful romantic life. Here, I'll I'll read a little to um, illustrate what Katie is saying. It starts by saying, and I kind of, you know, I I kind of, 
it's very ballsy, right, not to use a gender-inappropriate word in a certain way. I would like to thank, first of all, the astonishing individuals I have loved. I would like to thank my first boyfriend, Michel Gossou, choir director at Paris's St. Sulpice Church, made notorious by the Da Vinci Code, for setting the bar so high on quotidian romance, which is one of these very backhanded statements, I think, actually. I would like to thank Chris McCulley, the fiercest poet that British Isles ever bore, and once my fiancé. I would like to thank the father of my newborn child, Vasilis Sakonas, for taking me into his proud Cretan heart despite our resplendent differences. If our love was impossible, it was also fiery and stubborn, as he is. I would like to thank the teacher who reintroduced me to writing after I'd abandoned it, um, etc., etc. And then she yeah. also goes on to thank um, Russell Jacoby, who's a kind of well-known intellectual uh, who was a love of her life for 10 years. And then she says he's irascible and impossible, but, you know, it's a, yeah. also a description Incendiary, of rousing, riveting, understated, over-anxious, bitter, and sweet companion of my last decade. Yes. So. Who took the uh, book cover photograph? Yes, which is also part of the construction of the persona, this very pretty book cover photo that she has at the back. Yeah, she's quite beautiful, and I would say looks very sexually charismatic. And I was saying before, I happened to look at the HarperCollins website before my book came, because the book is posted, and I was reading some of it. And there's a whole photo spread of her in, in different sundresses on on the website in a little diary about her travels, if I remember, and a picture of the uh, father of the the baby. And I was just curious about, I mean, I have to say, and I feel kind of odd saying this, I mean, because she is so strikingly beautiful and just really does have this charisma that comes through the, the photographs. If you read the book filtered through that knowledge mm-hmm. of her, or if that colors her experience of, of loving and and being loved, because you know you do wonder how does this go over this this advice to hurl yourself into people regardless of the consequences and suffer and be a fool in love. You know, if you're this kind of dowdy, twenty pounds overweight person, right. you know. Uh, so I just wonder. You know, it's one of the things we're, we're very good at talking about hierarchies of race and class, but you know. The, the differential experience uh, in terms of beauty mm-hmm. and how that structures experience is something it's, it's a bit harder to talk about. It's really true. And, you know, one thing I think this book is um, that I didn't say in the review, but this book actually is a kind of defense of elitism in a lot of ways, because in a weird way, it's it is a book for kind of artists and intellectuals. I mean, her she's almost she's never explicit about it. And you can see why. And you can see that her publisher might not want her to be. But there's a kind of um, I thought a subterranean current kind of saying if you are of a certain intellectual class this is how you're going to love and almost that it's not really a book for everybody and that does connect back to the beauty question that you raised Laura because I think that's absolutely right like beauty casts spells like we know that we have a kind of irrational you know, response to beauty that is the kind of irrationality that she's celebrating. And if one weren't capable of casting that spell on others, maybe you wouldn't have so much both respect for and kind of um, be so drawn toward that yeah, irrational it's, it's experience. Of love. Um, Elizabeth Hardwick has an essay on Mary McCarthy in which she says that um, McCarthy was able to write so fiercely um, and so ardently. Because of two things. One, she says, a high level of personal attractiveness. She says a woman Hmm. needs that. And she said, an irregular romantic life. Hmm. And she said, if it wasn't for those things, she would seem spinster-like. And the force of her intellect and her argument would not be possible. 
um, without she those two have things. That sexual charisma along with the irregularity. Because it, it huh. allows for a kind of, you know, a sort of contrarian point of view in a di- in a way that some other personality wouldn't take. And it's a pretty, I mean, you know, it's a strange thing. Elizabeth Hardwick is a good friend of Mary McCarthy's. So it's a strange thing to write for a number of reasons. But I think that there's something to be said for that kind of argument. Yeah, it, and it goes into this question about the conclusion that you should live, we should live our lives more like art. Our mm-hmm. biographies should be the thing that matters more than mm-hmm. um, the actual work that we produce. And I just happened to be reading last night this um, review that Jed Pearl did of The Bacon Show that's at the Met. And he says something exactly about this, and it's very short, so I'm just going to read it. He says, um, and it's a big attack on the Bacon Show. He says, This is the Francis Bacon. Francis right, right, Bacon, yeah. yeah, the painter. Like all modern poseurs, he believed that biography is the ultimate trump card, that the art is more or less a reflection of the life. And in this, he is again on the front lines of a wrongheaded tradition, the tradition that values the artist over the art. And I was thinking, you know, so it seems very fresh when you read it in the Nearing book, but it also mm-hmm. is a familiar kind of romantic mm-hmm. pose is what Jed Pearl is saying. And it's, you know, it's just an interesting question and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, raises all these qu- questions about persona mm-hmm. and the aestheticism. And also, I think how we do mythologize biography right now, that we do, we are attracted to the flamboyant biography, the art, you know, and um, in Double X, the one of the Slate magazines, Hannah Rosen, a colleague of mine, wrote a kind of defense of boring marriage where she said, you know, she said a version of what you're saying, Laura, which she said this book is really in some ways about a defense of artists and flamboyant artists, but for every you know, kind of crazy, passionate, artistic love affair like Diego Rivera and Frida Kahlo, you know, there's a Virginia and Leonard Wolf, or there's a much more grounded I kind of... I understand her bringing yeah. Virginia and Leonard Wolf. Yeah. Because for, you know, given their... Yeah. That wasn't well, exactly a normal marriage right. without right. any infidelities or... Right, right, right. Well, or just the point being, there's like some kind of, you know, more traditional, less tempestuously obvious kind of dramatic affair and you know I do think this book kind of plays to our anxieties about the quotidian which are age old and heightened I think in this specific moment because of sort of domesticity and the kind of equitable marriage and the emphasis on child rearing that we have right now but that that is um, that's always been there as she herself is pointing out and I don't know that, you know, as I was thinking about it, I was like, well, this isn't a solution either, really, right? This is not actually a solution to anything. Well, sort of abandoning the attempt to find solutions, which is the thing I do like about it. Because everybody knows the quotidian, well, not everybody knows, but it has often been said the quotidian doesn't last because it just becomes too tedious to to live with. Yeah. You know, marriage as a a kind of premature cemetery. So she gives up on the attempt to make things last and then celebrates these short-term intense things. But it is a question, you know, is this the kind of thing anyone can really sustain and and get anything else done? But I I guess for me, I think the argument shouldn't be taken that literally. Mm -hmm. That in a way, what this is really about is thinking about things a little bit differently. And I think, you know, I I mean, I I don't want to speak to how literally Nering takes her own argument. I have no idea. But but I think its value is not in the literal argument, but rather in the way her very extreme 
statements um, make us rethink or give you know add nuance to a pretty monolithic way of thinking about relationships that we have you know in this culture. And so I think to me, I you know I just I feel like the value of this book is not in its literal argument because were you to track them and trace them and outline them you would come up with something that of course you can't a you can't live with but also are sort of ridiculous mm-hmm. i totally agree you know we end up with I young totally, werther yeah. as the kind of ideal yeah. Yeah. you know shooting himself for being in love with a married woman and that's not right you know, very few people are going to actually defend that as a way of life no i totally agree but i do think it's worth saying that it's not a literal it's right that, i mean i was saying a version of what mm-hmm. you're saying which is it's not it's not a literal that you can follow this as an instruction manual it is a puncturing and a kind of wanting you to reframe a little bit. But there are moments where she acts as if it's literal. She does a, you know, it's a, a rhetorical it's kind of presentation. And and at the very beginning she t- she kind of gives away the key to the map by saying, This is a polemic, I'm going to say things that I'm not substantiating. It is so, also very prescriptive. Mm-hmm. Well and one thing I actually like about this book and I find endearing about it is that she's not ironic and she's mm-hmm. not um, I, yeah. you know, most people um, of our generation are kind of very caught up in this certain kind of self-deprecation and irony and a kind of way of presenting your opinions that is is undermining them. And I think one of the things I like about this book is that she's so kind of bold and she just says when she says and she if she appears ridiculous she appears ridiculous yeah um, I liked that too that there is a kind of lack of irony in it that sort of um may itself be artificial it's not that it's necessarily a kind of naturalness right but it's because this is a highly posed rhetorical kind of project, but I did sort of. It was a. Refer, it was. It was it's enjoyable. Refreshing. And I mean, I think her models are older models. I mean, I think what's mm-hmm. interesting about her as a scholar and a thinker is that she's trying to write like Simone de Beauvoir. Mm. She's not trying to write like Dave Eggers or Jonathan Franzen. She's mm-hmm. trying to write like um, Mary Wollstonecraft, mm-hmm. and that kind of writing. Mm-hmm. It's just not the way people of a certain age normally think or present their ideas. They normally present their ideas in this other kind of cagier way, Mm -hmm. um, in more sophisticated way Mm -hmm. and subtler way that Mm -hmm. we've been trained in and immersed in. And I guess that, uh, to me, is what was refreshing about it. Do you think Mm -hmm. it also draws on a Christian tradition? I mean, it does seem to want to substitute love for religion Mm -hmm. and turn it into a kind of religion or a sort of faith. And she does say somewhere something about wanting love to re-enchant the world. And I thought mm. maybe that's why it seems a bit unfamiliar, or at that's least to really me, because it's a tradition I don't feel so connected to. Well, that's really interesting to think of that kind of like, because at the heart of Christianity is a different kind of love, not romantic, but agape, the kind of you know brotherly love, and there's sort of brotherly love as well. But there is something, that would be an interesting reading of it. I didn't feel that while I was reading it, but... Um, she certainly, it, she certainly is. I mean, aestheticizing or turning it into a little bit of a, a religion. I mean, there's something a little nihilistic at places in the book. I thought, but that I thought at one point the book was going to be much more nihilistic, and then she backs away from it. I mean, you see it most in the Goethe cha- the chapter mm-hmm. about the sorrows of young Goethe, where I was like, wait, are you kind of proposing that we just plunge so far <laughs> into love that we die? You no, know, which is sort of the it. natural extent of her argument. And somewhere see- I feel like we've all been, but kind of stepped back from that precipice a little. Bit, you, know. you can see an editor's hand because I think a few times there's this insertion of yeah. a sentence. Of course, I'm not endorsing suicide. suicide. I, know, I thought that doesn't really sound like narrowing. I totally agree. And there's another moment where she's like, of course, feminism has brought great advances yeah. for half of humanity. <laughs> and that felt a little like another one of those editorial check moments. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, another interesting thing about that is that she is trying to carve out a kind of niche within popular culture for some of the, you know, she's translating some um, kind of reading of literature into a popular cultural way of thinking about love, which does feel to me like an older, like a kind of, for some reason I kept thinking of trilling while I was reading this, and I don't know why their styles are so completely different, but they're just (coughs) a kind of like, she really does want to persuade, um, and she has that kind of earnestness to that and the belief that she can somehow. Also that tour through history, mm-hmm. you know, regardless of period, is an mm-hmm. older style humanism mm-hmm. of, you know, I don't know, names are escaping me, but those those sort of central intellectual figures sort of pre-trilling, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. that are not interested in historical specificity or context or that kind of thing. Well, because it does, you're right, it does jump. I mean, it's not just literature. I mean, she starts by talking about sort of Plato and philosophy in ancient Greece, and then suddenly we're in a much more modern era. I mean, we get to the Renaissance very quickly. But I enjoyed that part of it. It was sort of, that was part of the pleasure of the book, I thought, was just that she was willing to kind of go down paths that interested her. And even into pop culture, like, he's just not that into you. Although I, I did think, like you, Katie, that that was not the most... That felt a little bit like she was trying to kind of pander to the modern, the, the kind of purely contemporary audience out there who would not want to read about Eloise and Abelard. Well, um, before we come to a close, is there anything else that we haven't talked about here that we want to get to? What was your favorite chapter? I thought the Wallstonecraft was yeah. um, actually very gripping to yeah. read. Uh, Me too. That was my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. And it also, I felt like Wollstonecraft was her heroine. Yeah. And she mm-hmm. felt the most connected to her and the most identified with her. And there was something about that part that did have this kind of heat to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And and also did let you into the position of the other person. Like I said, the mm-hmm. part you quoted about, you know, this letter-writing campaign, well, that sort of thing never really works. I mean, it was, <laughs> but that was... A way that that section also, to me, unraveled her argument a bit because it Mm -hmm. was the thing that made me think about the way that for her love seemed to be very much just about the position of the person doing the lover, sorry, doing doing the the loving, loving. because you got this sense of somebody just feeling completely besieged and, and, you know, not so attracted Mm -hmm. by this this style of loving that she's endorsing when when Wollstonecraft is just kind of beside herself and, you know, writing these 20 letters a day. Well, because, you know, it's interesting, like it is not... It's a book about love, but it is really a book about the self because part of the argument is that this does things for the self that feed back into the work. And if you think about kind of narrowing herself and the position at the end of the book, that's exactly what's happening here too, right? Is that she's saying, I've been scarred and hospitalized, but here now I have this baby and also this book, right? (laughs) This kind of pink and purple green, this purple and green book. And it's sort of she's positioning herself as the latest. I mean, she's the kind of modern Wallstonecraft. And um, there is something very, you know that is a I don't know if it's narcissistic it's certainly from the position of the self and the self's experience of the world even if it's also saying that that's transcendent and kind of um, artistic and you know deep a deepening of feeling that we should all have access to but is it yeah. love but I is it love is the, is the wait, no, that's, question that's, I was left with yeah that's a good question that is a good question. Well, I guess on that note, we can bring this to a close. For Katie Royfe and Laura Kipnis, thank you for joining us today on the Audiobook Club. And um, for Slate.com, I'm Megan O'Rourke. Slate's The Audiobook Club now comes to you on the third Thursday of every month. Our selection for September is Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger. Join us for our discussion of Catcher in the Rye 
coming to the podcast on September 17th, 2009.